Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and committed to bringing you ideas and resources that will build your professional development plan. Thanks for listening. And if you're a current nonprofit leader, or if you hope to be one, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit experts who really are on the cutting edge of our sector. And if you would, do me a favor, share this episode with one other person so we can continue to build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. Well, I had a fantastic conversation in this episode with Catherine Warfield, who brings great expertise as a senior VP at the Foundation for the Carolinas, one of the largest community foundations in the United States. And you know, there are a lot of things to learn about as a nonprofit leader. And frankly, folks outside of this sector, I don't believe have any idea the depth and breadth of information that you need to know as a nonprofit leader. And some of that information, frankly, is intimidating. And that's exactly what Catherine and I discussed. Some topics like donor-advised funds, things that you need to understand and better access as a nonprofit leader, because there's literally billions of dollars in these vehicles that are increasingly used by philanthropists as a means to give away some of their wealth. Catherine has such a great ability to help translate what is behind something like donor-advised funds, help you understand, and then maybe better connect with some of these philanthropists, and get into the broader concept of plan giving, legacy giving, and help you understand what's out there in terms of potential and better assure that your nonprofit is in the minds of families that she's working with right now and other families in your community who are looking for ways to leave a legacy. But is your nonprofit going to be on their list? And Catherine will give you some ideas as to how you can assure just that. And here's one other thing Catherine and I discussed, and I'll be intentionally provocative here. I bet you're not utilizing the community foundation closest to you. And the good news here is that Catherine's going to talk about exactly what is a community foundation, what types of resources it can provide, and how you can better utilize it wherever you are. Lots of good things to listen for here, and you want to check out the show notes. This is episode number 105. Uh, Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you can find out more about all the resources Catherine and I discuss, as well as more information on her and the great work she's doing at the Foundation for the Carolinas. Now, speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. We're on all of the primary social media channels and get on our email list so you can be assured of getting resources like this. This podcast episode is an example of free weekly resources we're providing. And maybe it'll start a conversation. Maybe we can help you and your nonprofit with its strategic plan. Maybe it's to re-engage your board of directors. Or we can help you determine your next step toward nonprofit leadership through our coaching, training, or one of our mastermind programs. Well, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Catherine Warfield. Catherine, thank you for joining me on the path. Hey, Patton. Good morning. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, I'm excited about this conversation, Catherine. You have a wonderful experience in the philanthropic sector, working both with nonprofit leaders and many of the funders who want to support them. And I know our listeners are going to benefit from those perspectives on both sides of the fence, if you will. And, and I wonder, as you think about your journey 
Is there anything in particular you're proud of? Because you've done a lot of great things that help nonprofit leaders. Gosh, Patton, well, well, first and foremost, again, thank you for what you do to support the nonprofit community through this podcast and for letting me be a part of it. I'm, I'm so excited um, and have so enjoyed your episodes. Um, and it's such a great question. I, I have had the great privilege of working for Foundation for the Carolinas for over 13 years now. And so there's just so much to be proud of and, and so much good that's been done. And let me be clear, it's, it's part of a bigger team. Uh, for sure. Um, but I do feel like I've, I've gotten to do a lot over that time and grown a lot and, and seen the community change a lot. Uh, I think when I think about sort of the long lasting impact and, and what's been the most meaningful to me, both personally and professionally, frankly, has just been around my work through plain giving. So on the advancement team at the foundation, of course, we're serving individuals, families, companies, and nonprofits through fund ma- tra- charitable fund management. Um, so sort of today's giving. But and we're going to get into this topic, I think, a little bit later, our work with individuals and families to help them structure and implement gifts that happen at their death is some of the most just meaningful, wonderful work. Um, And so, you know, in that time, I think part of it tracks the the sort of nature of Charlotte and Charlotte's uh, wealth landscape and makeup and population and sort of philanthropic profile, because we do have a lot of um, really important community leaders who are aging up and sadly often aging out of, of, of our community. And so, um, you know, the growth of the foundation's plan giving pipeline, if you will, has certainly tracked, I think, some of the macro things happening in our community. But just being able to, and so part of what the foundation does, and my team in particular does, is to try and work with donors to both encourage them to think about leaving money to the community and then helping them structure those gifts in a way that's meaningful for their family, that's um, efficient from a tax and asset perspective. Um, And so that pipeline has grown a lot in the last 13 years. And and we do keep a pipeline, which of course is estimates only. Um, It's not a, it's typically not an irrevocable gift, but it's helpful for for us from a stewardship perspective, as I know is true for a lot of the listeners to this podcast. Um, And that pipeline has grown substantially, I hope through just our team's just tireless commitment to advocating for philanthropy in all its many forms. And so I think one of the joys for me that I'm proud of is just the work that we've done to not only grow that pipeline, but to have really meaningful conversations with donors. Um, The last thing I'd say about that is that it's, it's been interesting now to have been here long enough where I have donors that I've worked with that have passed on, you know, that have passed away and as sad and hard as that is, what a gift and a joy to be in a position to help, them be remembered, you know, and I, I think of one, there was a, a six figure uh, anonymous bequest to Planned Parenthood and a longtime donor who I adored. He passed away a, a few years ago, um, but the development director there at Planned Parenthood, who no, who's no longer there, she's really the, the, the leader of the Charlotte office, um, had worked with him as well. And the two of us just had so much fun reflecting on him and his passion. And as we were working on, on, on implementing that gift, and it's just one of so many examples that I'm really proud of. Well, you should be, Catherine. I'm glad you're illustrating what is often behind the scenes, of course, in every community, right? The pipeline you describe. And I think it's important for nonprofit leaders to understand that pipeline exists. And of course, resources like you provide and community foundations everywhere. Um, What have you found as the mood over this very difficult last year in, in the donors you interact with? I mean, the pipeline is alive and well. And in fact, maybe has intensified in some ways, or how would you describe maybe the conversations you're having these days? 
Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I, you know, I had joined the foundation right before the 08 crisis. And so while I was very new to philanthropy at that time, it's been interesting to me to consider the community reaction, the donor um, reaction and the sort of overall response in this last year during the, the pandemic as it relates in comparison to the 08 crisis. Um, I think it's been very different. And I think at the beginning of the pandemic, I could not have actually imagined how different the donor response might have been. Um, in terms of plan giving though, I think you're, you're exactly right. The mood actually is, um, is more urgent. And I think the urgency comes from um, the, pan- the, the macro trends of the pandemic, both creating this time of reflection and, and time of, um, I don't want to say isolation. That's not the right, right word, but, right. Uh, but, but time at home, uh, maybe it's just reflection. Uh, and so you have sort of that thing happening where people are saying, gosh, okay, I have time to maybe have time to get my affairs in order. Maybe I have time to reflect. Maybe I have time to think about my own, frankly, my immortality as it, as it relates to this pandemic. It could be that they look around and say, gosh, the needs of the community are so great. And our nonprofit sector can at times be fragile because of the nature of the way that resources are allocated. And that has me thinking about how to provide for more, you know, late now or later, Um, you know, and certainly that sense of urgency was reflected to us throughout the year in terms of our work with um, professional advisors, which are critical to our work. Um, So estate planning attorneys and accountants and the like, and the estate planning attorneys were frankly overwhelmed with people who were in a position to, um, wanted to update or execute estate plans, you know, and a lot of it came and frankly, a lot of it came from people in the healthcare profession, as I've heard, but, but I think overall, you know, so that's been an interesting time to both think about how to take the, the trends that we're seeing in terms of community need and fragility and the the lack of frankly, permanent endowments uh, at times for this particular community and how to, how to take this moment in time to make the case for our nonprofit partners for how important that is. I'm so glad you lift up well all those points, but in particular the urgency, because I think often nonprofit leaders, fundraisers in particular, um, it's hard to get excited about deferred giving, plan giving, because like my job as a fundraiser, I've got to make things happen now, and I'm, I know you're going to help lift up the fact that if a donor is considering a legacy gift toward your organization, they're likely going to help you in the near term as well. And so I love that you're making that point that we need to not kind of uh, think of plan giving as just something far off in the future. Absolutely. And believe me, I know how hard that is to do. So, you know, I say that with such desire and and fervor, but I also understand the realities, you know, I I can't, could understand the realities of how hard it is for our nonprofit partners working so hard in our community, to your point, Patton, raise annual dollars, meet current needs to, to make the investment in the future, because it's hard to do. But I agree with you. It's just, it's so important, especially I think at this, again, at this moment in time and this moment in Charlotte and in our our greater region in particular, Um, you know, and the good news is, is that we have a a donor base and a a community population who um, leans that way anyway. You know, I think when, um, even if they weren't asked, I think they're, they're doing amazing things without being prompted or without being asked. They're leaving money to our community. I just found out about a significant request that came into an organization that's important to me here. Um, and I don't think we knew it was coming, Right. but, right. but we can't let off the gas. You know, we yeah. have to continue to make sure that that is at the forefront. Um, 
you know, and the reality is that people nowadays, I had this conversation with a plan giving donor last week who, who doesn't have children. And she said, you know, people, you know, nowadays, I mean, it's a generalization, but nowadays people, a lot of people aren't having children. Right. right? And so for those families, for those couples, for those individuals, leading money to charity becomes an even, an even more important, um, conversation. Right. Right. Uh, um, again, very glad you're bringing that up because you're making this is, I know your goal and your mission is to bring practical reality to this kind of philanthropic discussion, particularly for nonprofit leaders anywhere who aren't sure exactly what this plan giving stuff is about, what are donor advised funds, and right. even what is a community foundation, which we'll talk about because I think a lot of nonprofit leaders do not take advantage of the resources available. But before we go there, Catherine, how did you get into this game? You know, I, I talk to a lot of colleagues that wonder what's it like to work for a community foundation and how did you even get into this kind of work? Yeah, well, that that's a, it's a fun story. And I feel a little bit like I want to pinch myself, um, you know, sometimes that, that, that one of those right place, right time sort of sequence of events. But frankly, I actually really owe it all to the Arts and Science Council, another really important nonprofit in our community um, who has been amazing and done wonderful things over the years. Um, they had a program called the Cultural Leadership Training Program, which to their credit was, was a, a program that they um, designed to build a pipeline of informed, engaged, and educated volunteer leaders to serve the cultural sector. And um, I was living in Charlotte, working for a bank, a mid-sized bank here, and a friend told me about this program. And so I participated in the second cohort. It was actually in uh, 2006, 2007. Um, And I'd always had an interest in in nonprofits and frankly had wanted to, um, (laughs) well, I actually wanted to go work uh, for NPR in DC when I first uh, graduated from college. But you know, you get a job offer and, and you, and, and you need to take advantage of it. Right. So that's what I did. I moved exactly. to the bank and it was great, but I, you know, but, it, but the pr- program really just reinforced my interest in the community space. And so I, I basically just began networking with everyone in, the, in my cohort, in that class and um, sort of happened to ask somebody in my class that worked at the foundation right at a time when they had a job opening coming up and um, you know, sort of right place, right time. And frankly, the banking background patent, I think, one of the things that may be surprising to some of the listeners is the the, the technical complexity of what happens at a community foundation and, right. and in particular right. ours, right? Because of course we are a community organization first and foremost, absolutely. But we also have to have this deep technical expertise. And when I say technical, I mean legal, financial, accounting, investment, um, complex charitable vehicles, complex charitable planning. Uh, and and so the, the fact that I had this banking background, even though it was brief, was actually quite relevant. And then right. and since I've been at the foundation, I've actually gone back and um, uh, got my, my CFP, my certified financial planning um, certificate, and have a lot of people on our team that are attorneys or accountants by background or, or investment professionals. And so I do think at our core, we're all there to do community work, you know, and I think that's why we work as do all all your listeners, uh, work hard, but the technical components um, are really important. And that's why I'm glad you lift that up because among the things that you're going to help explain, I know, is um, the community foundations in uh, all of our markets, both nationally and internationally, even you help us through complex uh, philanthropic right. instruments, right? So if I'm a nonprofit, and I guess that leads to the question, Catherine, you know, what is a community foundation and why does it matter to me if I'm a nonprofit leader? Sure, absolutely. Well, 
I could do a whole podcast on just this topic, Patton, so you can interrupt <laughs> me if I get too long-winded in this. Oh, this is your, one of your favorite know. topics, right? It is. I don't know. It is. And, and certainly, believe me, before I um, ended up here, I had never heard of a community foundation, right? I mean, and I didn't know what it was and certainly didn't understand the context and the history. So, you know, for any listeners who, who think, gosh, I've heard it and, and it sounds nice, but I, I've never really stopped to understand, don't worry, you're not alone. And hopefully this will help a little bit. Um, but I do think, I do think history and context is important. So, um, because Foundation for the Carolinas is one of about 850 community foundations across the country. And so no matter where your listeners are, it's likely they have a community foundation in, you know, serving their local area. It may not be called a community foundation, right? New York is the New York Community Trust and Silicon Valley is the Silicon Valley Community Foundation. And we're foundation for the Carolinas. So they might look and feel a little bit different. And that is right. a common theme is everyone is a little different in terms of its age and stage and assets and community. But what's what's common across them is this idea of being a bona fide nonprofit. So first and foremost, we're just like a lot of your listeners. We are a public charity. We're not a private foundation, which by contrast is seen differently from the IRS's perspective. And it's typically only sourced with one family's money. We are collaborative. We are um, connected uh, across donors and we are a public charity. So that's important to understand. Um, but, and, and as I mentioned, we're part of a network, but, but the idea of a community foundation really was built on the idea uh, in an old banking model of a community trust. And so maybe you're in, maybe your listeners will be interested, just a brief history lesson. Um, there oh, was yeah. a banker, a banker in Cleveland named Frederick Goff and Frederick Goff was in the sort, sort of same, you know, peer group as the, you know, Rockefellers and, and Carnegie, you know, families. And um, he was a uh, banker and he worked for the Cleveland Trust Company, which was a, a banking company there. It was very successful. And then um, night, around 1913, 1914, he advocated for and ultimately formed the first community foundation in the country called the Cleveland Foundation. And I think what's interesting about, about what his vision was, was this idea of saying, okay, a bank shouldn't be in charge of overseeing money that a family leaves for a particular community, right? They don't, they don't, they may not have the skills to, to assess community needs. They may right. should be in a different structure. And so the idea was create a community trust, a separate entity that's really funded by people from that community, governed by people from that community, and intended to benefit people in that community. And so, um, you know, that, that, and one of the things I read about him recently was that his vision was to create the first permanent but flexible community savings account. So this idea of a community savings account is really how community foundations were created. And so, you know, over time, a lot of community foundations um, have discretionary assets that um, were left by families who say, okay, I've made my wealth here. I don't have heirs or I don't have heirs that I am entrusting with this particular part of my estate. I want to leave it to a place where I know it will exist in the future and exist to serve the people of the community that, that I, that I loved. And so, um, you know, that's really how the field was born. And so again, 850 now, um, we typically benchmark ourselves by by total assets, although there's other ways, certainly in terms of total grant making, meaning, meaning dollars that leave our organization on an annual basis, which, of course, is very important. Right, um, right. We may also benchmark ourselves in terms of money that we have at our discretion. That means like 
you know, money that that where there are no donors involved anymore. They they maybe left it totally unrestricted, or they've left it um, with a particular field of interest or a p- particular geography, meaning just York County, South Carolina, in our case, or or just for animal welfare or education. Um, and so, and Foundation for the Carolina is a, a little known fact. Maybe we have very limited discretionary funding. We have a lot of donor directed grant making, a lot of donor advised funds, and a lot of nonprofit endowments that have sort of a stated purpose. Is that and typical, so, Catherine? I'm sorry to interrupt yeah, you. Yeah, no, I was no, say, I'm so You know, a lot of. I think often we look at our community foundations, we see big numbers because you're managing yes. assets yes. Of, of some significance. But I think it's worth, you know, repeating that point that a lot of the funds you manage are restricted, right? And that's something we need to understand. Yes. And thank you, Patton. Um, and I told you I could talk about this topic a lot. Um, but yes, it's very, <laughs> it's very, it is, it is, um, it's a great question. And what I would say is if you think about, say, Foundation for the Carolinas is about 60, um, what, 66, 67 years old. So in, in the field, right, we're, we're on the, maybe a little bit on the younger side um, than, uh, than, again, the Clevelands and, the, and the, older, the older foundations, the more mature foundations. I do think there's some reason why we have less discretionary assets there, right? Because we're still working with donors today who we hope might include some portion of unrestricted funds in their, in their state gifts in addition to their support of nonprofits they cared about. Um, but it, it is, it can be quite confusing and sometimes challenging for our staff because, you know, for many of the listeners, maybe they've come to our annual meeting and they hear us say, we gave out, Foundation of the Carolina has distributed $400 million in grants last year. And while that is an incredible number and a privilege and honor for our team, a lot of that was donor advised fund grant making, right. where active donors and their families knew exactly where they wanted to give. It may be giving outside of our region. It could be scholarship funds. And, and we at Foundation for the Carolinas have an unusually high percentage of um, nonprofit endowments. So that's where nonprofits in our community are coming to us actually to help manage their and, and offer um uh, economies of scale in terms of investments, which is a great thing. And we're so honored to do it. It's a little bit unusual in terms of other community foundations. There's some Arizona has a high percentage uh, and there are a few others out there. So you're right. I think digging in a little bit on the numbers, which is hard to do in a newspaper article or in an annual meeting um, is important. And so how we kind of, like you said in the beginning, work behind the scenes to um, play matchmaker, to, to play advocate right, to, to encourage donors to be philanthropic in whatever form, but ideally to also match up with giving interest to the extent they're open to that matchmaking. That's important, right? Not all of them are interested exactly. in matchmaking, but if they are, we work really hard to do that too. So if, obviously, if I'm a nonprofit leader, I need to learn about my community foundation because a lot of those open community funds, the information's on the website, likely, right? And so I need to do right. my homework and understand those funds that are available. And I guess I was going to ask you about that exact point. It's important for me to understand my colleagues at the foundation, uh, you know, the Catherine Warfields of any community foundation, but maybe talk about that. So you do want to know about community activities, nonprofit activities in particular, but you also want them to understand that you can't literally direct some of the funds you manage. That's right. That's right. So, so from a from a sort of um, formal grant making process, meaning you know, when our, our nonprofit listeners here might be thinking about you know going to apply to the Gates Foundation, if I take a, a mega example, right, and submitting a grant application, we do have some of those grant making programs available at the foundation, um, and they are on our website. Um, you know, a lot of times they are tied to a particular. Um, 
donor restriction, you know, so I think that's important to know too. Um, so for example, our Charlotte Mecklenburg Community Foundation grant making is all largely um, funded by an, a significant bequest we received in the mid nineties from Lucille Giles, who left um, a $35 million estate gift, but it was, it was intended for Charlotte and it had some additional sort of interest areas tied. Right. So, you know, that's an example, it's sort of a larger scale, but certainly, um, you know, my team manages a couple of client grant making programs that have different parameters as determined by the donors. So yes, certainly checking out the website important, but you're right. I think for us, our, our goal is to, to have, find the right balance of um, respecting donors' interests and meeting them where they are, but yet arming ourselves with information to make those connections when the opportunities arise. But you're right. We, um, you know, while we encourage grant making in whatever form, you know, meaning saying, okay, donor advised funds, we want to make sure our donors are actively grant making and they're getting, you know, able to access their fund online and they're, and they're aware of community needs and all of that. We aren't in a position to say, Hey, you should do this or that. Um, you know, it's really more about resources and about um, encouragement than it is around um, direct action. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I guess the reality is Catherine, some donors are more public in their efforts That's or some, right. some funders, um, because I guess that's sometimes from the nonprofit perspective, we know that you have a lot of funds, you, the community foundation, but we may not be able to identify, right, exactly right. who's there. And so, but is there, I guess, is there a way to communicate our nonprofit's mm -hmm. mission through the community foundation? I guess it's through uh, team members like you. I think it is. And then, you know, we're always advocating for tools, you know, great tools like Share Charlotte, as an example, right, of of, of, of tools that um, do a great job of um, identifying and sharing information about things going on in our community. Although I will tell you, if I'm being honest, this is a real, this is hard. I, you know, I wish there was a a greater way to create some sort of tech repository to to right. share those in a, in a different kind of way. Um you know, and it's hard because sometimes we're meeting with a nonprofit who has a mission, one aspect of their mission aligns with with a donor, um, you know, so it might be around it's an it's an environmental organization, but they're doing education programs. So sometimes you may take that organization. I'm, I'm sort of just getting a, a, a made up example, but we might take sure. that to a donor that we know cares about the environment and say, this is really interesting. Would you like to hear more? Would you like an introduction? Or we may take we may be taking that to the to the donor we have that really cares about education, right? Right, and so um, it, it's a it's a um, it's a high touch type of matchmaking, which both I think yields a great result, but it is harder to scale. <laughs> That's such a good point, and and it's a reality, and, and I understand. Yeah. And I'm glad you lifted up that that sometimes you're put in a difficult position. As much as you like to help a nonprofit leader, you are still obligated to honor, you know, the donor's intent, right? And the donor's wishes That's right. and that may and or may not be connected. It's such an important concept in our field. I mean, this idea of donor intent, right? It, it really trumps, you know, it, it trumps most things. And it right. is, um, it right. is, it, it is so important. And so I think from a plain giving perspective, and maybe we'll come back around to this later, Patton, but um, from a plain giving perspective, it's why the conversations that you have with people today are so important right, to understand what their intent was so that you are in the best possible position to implement it later. Yes. Uh, you know, and I think that's true for everyone of the listeners as well, right, is, is what, do, what do they want? What do they want to have happen with their gift, right? And, uh, and, and how are you in a position to ensure, ensure that it happens and assure them that it will, 
right? Now, now there's that's delicate balance from ruling from beyond, right? Let me be clear. I, I understand that's not possible, but I think there's, but to me, the, the, the word intent is inherently um, adaptable and flexible, right? Um, yeah, because yeah. it's not, it's not directions. It's not instructions. Intent can be interpreted, um, you know, in the right way. Um, and so, but uh, so I do it's think important it's important concept. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Well, and, of course, I love the, the nature of your work, Catherine, in, in essence, forces you to be a student of philanthropy. And in fact, you yourself are indeed an expert on all things philanthropy. Um, in fact, I, I was looking at some of the notes you and I talked about. I mean, there's some important statistics we need to be aware of as nonprofit mm-hmm. leaders, right, in terms of both the growth of philanthropy, but also the growth of the nonprofit sector. That's right. That's right. And it was it was when you were talking about the um, how you engage and under and understand who we have in the fold, it, it sort of ties into the donor advised fund contact um, conversation, which we may have too, right? And in, in in that sometimes donors want to be, they don't want to be known. Exactly. Right. I mean that that's a that's a whole other thread. But you're right. Um the that's one of the things for me that's been really interesting to watch. In some ways, how philanthropy has changed and evolved, and in some ways, how slow it is to change. <laughs> um, and and that's a hard, um, it's a hard uh, balance uh, t- yeah. tension to observe. But yeah. uh, but you're right. I mean, the number of nonprofits certainly have exploded um, in the last several decades. Um, you know, the I think the the stat you're talking about was that you know, and this was this is a ten year old stat, so take that for what it is. But sure, sure. Um, that charitable giving in the previous twenty years had doubled, but the total number of nonprofits had tripled. Um, you know, and so you're, you know, you, you um, and, and a lot of the times the critique of donor advised funds in particular has been that while they are growing and, and total charitable giving is growing, it's not growing as fast as it should. Right. Um, right? And right. what do we do to, to, to advocate for total charitable giving? You know, thinking about the numbers that come out from, um, from giving USA every June, you know, how do we get that number up? Um, you know, and so, you know, donor advice funds have, have been a, a huge part of that. But I do think, um, you know, tracking some of those macro trends, I think, for any fundraiser is both interesting and probably helpful. Um, so we can talk about the stats in terms of donor advice funds patent or, yeah. you know, well, if that, yeah. Uh, it, it's exactly what I want to do. I think we can finish because you've got some great advice in plan giving in general, which I just want every nonprofit leader to absorb because as our friend Jim Kelly here in Charlotte will say, mm-hmm. uh, if you're not engaged in legacy or plan giving, you are, it, you're doing something wrong and you're not doing your nonprofit, the kind of service it deserves. But let's talk about donor advised funds because you're right. That's a hot topic. I don't think uh, many of our nonprofit listeners may fully understand what exactly is a donor advised fund. Absolutely. And again, like I said earlier, if you don't, you're not alone. It's not a stupid question. So I just want, I don't want people to feel like they can't ask, you know, because they're supposed to know. I think you, I think you, you know, I think it's good to get the information. We, um, Foundation for the Carolinas partnered with the Charlotte chapter of the Association of Fundraising Professionals, or AFP, another wonderful resource that I'll talk about at the end in terms of information on the sort of technical side from a from a uh, philanthropic and fundraising perspective. But we partnered with them to do a, a program in December um, of last year, December of, of 2020, on donor advised funds. I think because I, I was hearing sort of a theme that people just didn't understand what they were and then how to interact with them. And so we wanted to get on that, you know, at a high level. So what is a donor advised fund? A donor advised fund is a giving fund or a, 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 an account 
that sits within what's called a sponsoring organization. So what is a sponsoring organization? Sponsoring organization could be a a community foundation like Foundation for the Carolinas, and we are. It also could be a commercial gift fund like Fidelity, Vanguard, Schwab. Um, It could also be a single charity, um, sort of a a single charity type sponsoring organization, um, which might be such as the American Heart Association, which I believe now offers donor advised funds. Um, But the idea is that they're not a separate legal entity. So unlike a private foundation where you have to go hire a lawyer and file an entity um, that you have to maintain and you have to register with the IRS and obtain tax exempt status, donor advised fund is an account. So it's not a separate legal entity. But it, and and um, as the name implies, the donor who puts money into the fund remains the advisor, donor advised fund. So they retain what's called advisory privileges, which means they can give advice to the sponsoring organization as to how the money is invested, where the money goes in terms of grants, and who others might be authorized to also give advisory privileges, i.e., I want to name my you know, children as advisors or my, right, my spouse. Right. As and so, you know, the idea is that there's, they're just really flexible. You put money in today, you get an immediate tax deduction. Typically you're putting money in and some type of appreciation because you want to avoid those capital gains tax when that asset sells. So you might put appreciated stock in today, you receive a full uh, a fair market value of that stock at a, um, a public charity uh, status. Um, you can name your account what you want, or you can name it a name that, that is more anonymous. And then you decide when, where, and how much to give over time. And so uh, it's, you know, it, it's very flexible. It's very cost efficient because again, there's no separate legal entity, um, you know, and it's, um, it, it allows, I think, you know, our, our feeling is that it allows families in particular to just experience the joy of giving without the administration. Um, when I first started, a couple of things I would say on stats, Pat, when I first started, you know, I think it was, okay, if you're a certain size or higher, you should do a private foundation. Right, you know, you right. don't need a, a donor-based fund is not appropriate for smaller, for larger gifts. That's a big change I have seen over my time in that um, that is really no longer true. And in part, it's because you have people like Mark Zuckerberg, um, who put a billion dollars in a donor-based fund at the Silicon Valley Community Foundation. Um, you have Nick Woodman, who is the founder of GoPro, put 500 million, I believe, in a donor advised fund. And then you have some really mega gift examples here in the, in the Carolinas that have been fantastic. Um, and so the idea, you know, I think no longer is that you need your own private foundation. Um, and so there's over $140 billion currently and over 800,000 donor advised funds accounts across wow. all those different types of organizations. So you know, the Fidelity Charitable and the Foundation for the Carolina, all of those together. Well, and, is, um, are you, well, and mm-hmm. sorry, Kevin, but no. I want to speak to one of the, I guess, the crit- criticisms of donor-advised yes. funds, which I think you're going to address, but it seems, and this may be an ill-informed opinion, but I think there is that opinion out there that uh, these are just vehicles. I, I, I'm wealthy and I'm just going to park funds for the tax benefits, but there's really not a charitable intent. So, how do you respond yes. to that kind of criticism? It, and, it, and it's been going on and it, it's interesting. We, we've engaged in some, some conversations with um, policymakers in DC and others around this topic. And, and it's, um, it's really interesting, um, but certainly hotly debated. So you're right, Patton. Uh, you know, I think, um, you know, there are folks that say, well, it's, it's 
it's parking, it's warehousing of wealth. I've heard that phrase, warehousing. Yep, right. Um, you know, and and the so a potential response to that would be, well, a private foundation only has to give out five percent of its assets each year. And typically that is both the ceiling and the floor for most private foundations. Yep. And that also includes expenses and other um, activity. Uh, that administration. That or, yeah, that's or, right. That's right. Um, the flip side is that nationally, and this, again, this number is subject to change depending on who you ask and the calculation method, but the average payout ratio for donor advised funds across the country is much higher than 5%. Um, and, you know, and for foundation for the Carolinas can range from, you know, I think, 18 to 20% on an annual basis, right? So that tells me people are giving away a lot more than, than were they to create their own private foundations. One. Good point. You know, um, two, I think the other thing we, we certainly talk about is, you know, for these people that, that have mega gifts that are in a position to, to do something really big and pre-fund effectively philanthropy for a number of years, I think, I think the counter argument might be, would they, would they be as generous if they were in a hurry? Right. Would they be as generous if they were if they were selling a business and they they were in it and they had to decide where all of that was going to go outright to nonprofits that they that they may not have had time to think about, and then and therefore would then they just not be as as generous as philanthropic? Meaning, um, it's not that they they didn't mean to be, but they just so so as much amount of money may not have gone to the community that would have uh, but for this vehicle. So, you know, there, there's a lot of debate. And, you know, I think for us, we we encourage grant making. Um, we are in touch with our donors often to make sure. And certainly if if they are not giving from their donor advice fund, we are absolutely inquiring, finding out why, encouraging assistance. Sometimes people are saying, I am um, saving up. I'm pre-funding a, a major gift I'm going to make in two years or right. five years. Right. right. And there, there, there are a lot of times there's very good reasons. And so um, if there is limited um, sort of a, a limited pause on the grant making, but this, you know, so I think um, again, another topic I could talk about for a while. So they're, they've grown a lot. They've grown a lot, frankly, in large part because of the commercial providers, the community foundation growth for, from a donor advice fund perspective, while significant has not been nearly as rapid and a tracking as it has in the commercial. So while we have grown, the, the difference of how much we have grown versus the commercial sector is is a lot smaller. The the, uh, the fidelities of the world is where the, right. the real dramatic growth is occurring. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Certainly in terms of number of accounts too, you know, um, and, and I think that's a good thing. There's so much positive to be said about the growth because what it's doing is it's creating a way for, you know, a broader group of people, more quote, everyday folks, right. Uh, you know, to be able to engage in, in philanthropy in this way, right. Because probably before it was go create a private foundation, you know, and that's really it. And it, that was more of a real high, you know, ultra high net worth planning tool. And often um, they that, only give away the right. 5%, right. That's well, required. That's right. That's right. And w- which is great. I mean, look at, God, look at what our major private foundations in our community are doing. It's wonderful. It's not a criticism on that. It's just that, um, I think the idea of there being a continuum and a range of options that all exist to encourage people to be community-minded and philanthropic is a good thing. Absolutely. Right? That's, that's, that's the hope. Well, and again, I really appreciate that illustration because, again, I think that's one of those areas of philanthropy that we need to demystify. And yes. as you've helped illustrate the community foundations in general, where they came from and what their purposes are, 
and, and also clearly donor advised funds are here to stay and are growing. And so we have to understand that and That's still right. have to do our best. But let's let's finish with some advice around just plan giving in general. You know, Catherine, that's been a real forte of yours. You're such a good champion for it. And I, I wonder, as a nonprofit leader who's listening, says, all right, Catherine, I believe you. I need to get this in motion. What <laughs> advice would you have for someone who's trying to get their plan giving program uh, going? Absolutely. Well, thanks. I, again, I have a lot of passion and interest around this topic. And if Jim Kelly is listening, um, you know, obviously he's the ex, they're the resident expert. So I'll try and um, see if I can, I can share some of his nuggets <laughs> as well. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, as you said, you already said it, Patton, it's so important to focus on this, even though, even if it feels hard, right. Even, and, and as Jim said, you, you, you've got to include this at least as part of your strategy, recognizing that it is a current bet you know, on the future. Um, so, you know, I think for me, one of the things I have, a few things I've observed, you know, one, you know, is we talked about earlier around this idea of listening for what donors care about, right? So I think that's important and making sure that you have um, a range of opportunities that might interest them. Uh, you know, another is making sure that that fundraising professionals and staff of nonprofits find ways if they can to educate themselves, even at a high level, about the tools that, that are used to effectuate plan giving. And by tools, I mean the vehicles, right? right? So even just the basics on life insurance and retirement account beneficiary designations and sort of basic and outright bequests. So I think that's really important. And as I mentioned, the AFP is a great resource and we do some um, continuing education around this topic as well. Um, so that's another, I think, um, you know, maybe importantly, and I think this is actually the most fun in plan giving is to make sure that you are focusing on people who have a history of support of your organization, but may not be those that on paper you think are the wealthiest, right? So don't just focus on today's assets and the same sort of band of characters, because some of the most transformational gifts, you know, can come from modest annual fund supporters of your organization. And I'm Good sure point. everyone listening has got great examples of this, but I mean, some of the most meaningful foundation gifts that, that I've been a part of and have worked on have been from school teachers, you know, um, you know, people who, who um, were, you know, were not the people whose names are on buildings and are not the people who were, who were, you know, maybe on all the capital campaign lists. It's, and so I think this idea of never, you never know, you know, you never know who, who you're talking to. And so, um, you know, finding people who are connected and committed to your mission, um, whether that's just through routine annual gifts um, and having that deeper conversation, I think you'll be surprised at what you can unfold. It's that steady um, donor, right, Catherine? It, it yeah. may be $100 a year, but yes. they've been consistent and dependable. And you just don't know what they might have in terms of a legacy gift potential. That's right. And I think um, that's right. And, you know, I think it, it is um, it is sort of sad to think about that, that a lot of times for so many people, the largest and most meaningful and important gifts they'll ever be able to make will happen when they're gone. Right. right. Because from right. An, just from a pure sort of the way wealth is transferred and, and the way assets are, are, you know, a lot of times again, in retirement accounts, things like that, right. The retirement accounts alone are just a huge opportunity, you know, and especially again, if we're talking about people who may not have folks to pass on those assets to, um, you know, and so being able to really engage in the joy of what that might look like today, I think can be really meaningful. Um, I think being sure to include both, both husband and wife is really important. You yes, know, when, we're, yes. when we talk about philanthropic trends, the importance of women in philanthropy, um, 
and, and in, including them in the conversation. And I've certainly seen that change, you know, a, a lot. And I think it, there's more uh, evolution there, but I think, you know, it can't hurt to mention that it's really important. And in fact, a lot of times they're the ones making the decisions and frankly, statistically outliving their spouses. Indeed. Um, and so I think that's really important, um, you know, and then I, I just, and then I think just thinking about too, we talked about this earlier, making sure you have a plan in place to, to honor those donors. Um, and I don't mean you have to go create a named fund every time somebody loses a bequest, but you know, are you in a position to, to talk about how the, how the donors will be remembered and how their gifts will be implemented today, but to talk about that in the future. Cause at the end of the day, this is a lot of times about, it's about legacy. It's well, about that, legacy for the donor. And that signals to other donors, doesn't it, Catherine? If I take care of those legacy donors in my organization, obviously I'm educating others to, see how right. I'm going to be treated or they would be treated. And that, of course, is the best education of all. And I want to underscore too, Catherine, your good point about understanding the different vehicles. Often our philanthropy at the nonprofit level is, you know, direct kind of cash giving, so to speak. And if we don't illustrate our ability to take on the gift of real estate or stock or life insurance or all these vehicles that I certainly can't unpack, but it leads me to the question, isn't that, in fact, how my community foundation friends can help me? If I'm a nonprofit leader and I have a donor that approaches me with a complex giving vehicle, how might that work and how might you be able to help me? Yeah, that's I'm so glad you brought that up. And I think that's right. I think our, our value proposition in the plan giving space is is uh, has a couple of prongs there that you just hit on. You know, I think one is the idea of um of being able to handle more complex scenarios, right? And and at the end of the day, if the if the nonprofit has to staff and insource to handle these types of complex assets or situations, that might be taking away resources or attention from mission, right? And so, you know, being sure to find partners like Foundation for the Carolinas or your community foundation, wherever you are in terms of facilitating those gifts, yes. And so I think a lot of times we're in the plan giving conversation for one of a couple of reasons. One, um, we can handle something a little more complex and we're doing a lot more of that right now. And the conversations during lifetime to prepare for those transition of assets are significant. Um, and so that might be a reason. It may just be around this, just the sheer complexity and expertise required. Right. Um, you know, one might be around this idea of, um, of anonymity. And I hate, you know, and I, and so I want to be clear about that to the listeners. Sometimes donors don't want you to know that they're leaving you money because they might want to, re- maybe they want to retain the right to, to change their mind and, and, you know, or there might be reasons. And so, right. Right. you know, there are reasons. It doesn't mean that, um, they're not supportive of your mission. And so that can be another tricky place for us sometimes, I think, is when donors may not want um, the, the beneficiaries to know until it happens. Um, and so, you know, it may be this idea of sort of relative anonymity. It could be about the ability to um, engage the kids, right, in terms of where the where the decision goes. Right. And it could be just a, a pure efficiency uh, perspective, meaning, you know, I'm going to leave it to, to my donor advised fund. And from there, I'm going to do these five things I'm going to give to these five organizations in these stated amounts. And I'm going to leave some for my kids to advise. And then, and then hopefully, and this is where we come in, hopefully there might be some component of that that's left in an unrestricted way for the, for the community. And I also want the listeners to know that we are not, we're not advocating that for the, at the expense of any particular beneficiary. In fact, I would argue we're advocating for that for each and every person in our, in our community, each nonprofit, because you know, if, if we have a, if we have more discretionary assets at our disposal at Foundation of the Carolinas, 
we'll be in a position to respond more robustly when times of crisis come, right? And and we yes. might have the ability to do more um, more active grant making, where to this point, it's been a lot of leverage and a lot of civic leadership and convening um, in the absence of having a more robust, um, unrestricted endowment, if you will. And so I think my hope is that you, you find a way to work with donors that accomplish all of those things um, efficiently. And again, hopefully that yields a more robust gift overall for the community at large. Yeah. And, and Catherine, you're such a good ambassador for community foundations, uh, in, again, helping us understand what they are. And certainly a takeaway I'm hearing is get to know your community foundation, get to know the individuals that work for your community foundation. Is there anything else that comes to your mind that you might want to encourage a listener as they think about the relationship with their community foundation. You've given examples like the technical expertise you provide, but certainly there's a lot of programming you do as well. There, there is, there is. And I think, you know, looking at even just the sort of basic information on different types of charitable products that are on our website could be helpful for, for people who are looking to, to get more understanding there. I fully recognize it's a complex organization and the different pathways in um, are are numerous, you know, and so I, I I can appreciate that it can feel um, complex to know. And I think in some right. ways we want to be so donor centric and we want to have some redundancy, but in, in, in doing that, um, it may be harder for nonprofits to understand how to connect directly. So I think just ask, ask for that information. But again, looking at the, um, looking at the website, engaging in our programming, um, you know, and then, you know, asking questions and, and, and making us aware of the wonderful work I know so many of these listeners are doing would be a great place to start. Well, and I've heard you and your colleagues, so I know that's an authentic offer that the Indeed. more you know about the community, the more you can help. You can't guarantee, of course, where donors are going to direct their funds, but to the extent you're in conversations and with these folks, the more you know, the more you can help uh, create, you know, a better and philanthropic community. That's right. That's right. Uh, Catherine, this has been fantastic. Lots of advice that uh, I know our listeners will benefit from. And, and certainly we're going to link to the unique work that you're doing through the Foundation for the Carolinas. But you have these kind of conversations with people that are thinking about getting into nonprofit leadership. Is, is there anything else you would advise someone who approaches you with just that point, like, hey, Catherine, I think I'm going to get into nonprofit work. Uh, what do you tell them? Um, <laughs> at first I say, are you sure? Uh, I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, sort of. Uh, only only in that I know how hard everyone is working, you know, and I just and, right. and I think this passion and this commitment is something we try and lift up to our donors. And I'm saying that to the listeners who I think are, are so many nonprofit professionals who I'm humbled by their commitment and their just their, their tireless work. Um, but I think, you know, understanding the landscape and I think um, is important. And I do think this idea of some, I mean, for me, when they want to get into the community foundation world, I usually say, okay, do you understand the technical aspects? And back to that, our, our initial conversation around the um, sort of the, the more, technical expertise and planning aspects of what our team at least does and understanding right. um, and, and the importance of that um, and making sure people either have an interest or a background. But also I think, um, you know, the, the idea of being sort of self-starting to go find out more information, right? So whether it's, you know, the people looking for more information on different types of philanthropy tools or around community needs and issues or the different types of organizations. You know, I think that sort of curiosity of, of going to find that information becomes even more important for nonprofits because 
the the resources for professional development aren't there, right? So it has you, you have to be motivated individually in that way. Great point. And Catherine, of course, you are such a good ambassador for lifelong learning too. I want to congratulate you on your CFP oh, and the, the efforts you have made to learn your trade. And I'm glad you kind of are encouraging nonprofit leaders because I agree. I think sometimes nonprofit leaders come in with a well-intentioned, feel-good angle, but they need to do their homework. They need to understand this right. philanthropic world they're about to embark. And so I think you are giving them an appropriate cautionary advice there. And I guess I'll, I'll close with this question for you, Kevin. You know, you've, as a lifelong learner, you've utilized resources and you know, I'm going to ask you, of course, <laughs> as I do every guest, is there a book or two that in, has been uh, meaningful to you in particular? Yeah. As I said er- earlier, I figured this seven habits, which has been important um, for me is, is probably not that exciting. But certainly <laughs> uh, certainly we, Stephen we, Covey is, is, is always a good standby, but indeed. I, I it's a little old now, but one that I was thinking about that might be interesting for some of the listeners um, is the, uh, well, I should first say, in addition to your podcast, right, Tom? Um, <laughs> Thank as you. a great resource, truly, um, especially in this time when, you know, podcasts, I think, are such an accessible way to, to get information and hear from different folks. But a book I read, it's been a while, um, but which was really interesting, was called uh, Billions of Drops in Millions of Buckets by Stephen Goldberg. Um, again, it's probably been 10 years since I read it, but I think about it a lot and, and thinking about it, what we talked earlier around just the the number of nonprofits and the complexity around, you know, the nonprofit sector and the way institutional philanthropy has approached it, um, you know, and how hard it is and frankly, how hard the work for so many of these listeners are to compete against what are all wonderful, well-meaning, mostly largely all well-meaning and and hardworking organizations. And so, you know, again, I'm not saying I believe everything that, that he is advocating for in the book, but it was a really interesting read for, for somebody who wants a um, a more accessible way to think about the sort of macro trends on, um, you know, philanthropy and sort of this idea of, he calls it a hundred million dollar idea, right. And how do we mobilize philanthropy around really making change? So um, it was a, it's, it's a good one. I think that uh, listeners may enjoy. Love it. We'll happily lift that up among Mm -hmm. all the resources you and I have discussed in the show notes associated with this episode. And of course, you have been an advocate for any listener. Get to know your community foundation wherever you are. And in fact, Catherine, for those in this region, where can they find out more about you and the good work you're doing at the Foundation for the Carolinas? Absolutely. I think they can, um, again, check out our website, follow us on social media, on Facebook, and then um, certainly feel free to reach out to the team. If you have a contact already that you've been working with, start there. Or if you're welcome to reach out to me. I'd love to talk. Catherine, that's fantastic. We will indeed put that information in the show notes. And thank you again for joining me on the path. Great. Thank you, Pat. And thanks for all you do. It was a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Catherine as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can help you better understand and utilize your community foundation. And of course, as well as utilize more the principles and ideas Catherine shared about plan giving and understanding donor advised funds in particular. Don't forget the show notes. They are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, and you can find out more about Catherine, the Foundation for the Carolinas, and several very good book recommendations. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe. Go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all of the primary platforms. 
Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. And you know, if you're on a roll in terms of community foundations and the great resources at the Foundation for the Carolinas, go back a few episodes. Check out number 98. It was featuring Charlie Elberson, Diane Gavarkovich, and Whitney Feld. And right after that, number 99, President and CEO of the Foundation for the Carolinas, Michael Marsicano, also had great words of wisdom. Thanks again for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.